This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 629. The way that we've organized our finance and accounting team uh, is actually having regional accounting that's at all the manufacturing locations to make sure that from a cost accounting perspective, you know, we have feet on the ground that when any issues arise, it's very quick that they could go on the plant floor and figure out, oh, what's the right uh, number for inventory, so on and so forth. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Matt Hagel, CFO of Freshly. Back in 2017, when Matt Hagel stepped into a senior finance role at Freshly, the online prepared meals company was serving mostly the Western United States. Three years later, Freshly now serves customers coast to coast, and Hagel is CFO. Our discussion with Matt Hagel begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. We're speaking with Matt Hagel, CFO of Freshly. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Jack. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. So, Matt, we're going to, as always, begin by asking you to look back for us and to identify some of those experiences, explain them to us, uh, what you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role. What comes to mind? Yeah, I think common for CFOs is either the accounting path or the finance path. And for me, you know, I started my career at uh, Deloitte uh, along that accounting path, you know, but I would say even prior to then, you know, I was always very conscious I wanted to get into business and eventually be a financial leader. So, you know, I had taken accounting in high school and, you know, one of the first lessons I learned as a immature freshman at the University of Illinois was actually when we were assigned a group project. And here I thought, you know, I was being smart. I went to go meet my team in the library uh, and came with all the answers uh, completed and just dropped it off and left and said, here, this is actually all correct. Project's done. See you guys later. Um, When I got my grade, I didn't realize there was uh, my first 360 review, but it was a peer review. And I didn't get 100% on the assignment because my team 
uh, was a little upset that I didn't work with them on it. And, you know, that lesson stuck with me that truly as a leader, uh, it's important to first be a team member, right? And, you know, really your success at Deloitte uh, and in public accounting is working together as a team, uh, but not just to get the job done, to, to make sure your team understands why they're doing what they're doing and they understand how to do what they need to do. And, you know, I always remember, you know, that lesson from my freshman year at Illinois uh, that you need to be a good team member first. Um, and then eventually, you know, that leads you through Deloitte and, you know, eventually managing a team uh, and the leadership side. Um, but, you know, I chose the accounting path because I've always said accounting is the language of business. And wherever you go in business, you need to be able to read a financial statement. And that starts with accounting and to me, no better way than starting with your CPA. Um, you know, eventually I have to also give a lot of credit to all the founders uh, that I've worked with over the years. You know, they're truly visionaries that, you know, challenge everyone at the organization um, to grow quickly. And it's rare you see companies double in size year over year over year. And I think by them setting that example, you know, you as a financial leader, you really bring that back to your subject matter expertise. You bring that back to your teams and where we may say, hey, uh, you know, we need to build this model by tomorrow morning. And these seem like big, hairy, audacious goals. Um, you know, you just follow that leader and really bring that to the rest of your team. So I give a lot of credit to all the other leaders that I've worked with over the course of my career. And I've been very privileged to work with some of the best. Now, the part of your career I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind shedding some light on for us is when uh, maybe you got the itch uh, as far as moving to early stage companies. Uh, because originally, when you step out of Deloitte, uh, you step into a large uh, corporate uh, environment at Sony Music. Do I have that right or... Yeah, no, that, that's correct. And, you know, maybe it took me a little longer to mature my career. But when I was young, I just saw one, it was Sony Music. So the music industry to me was very alluring. Um, but I thought, oh, I can make more money and work less. That sounds great to me. Uh, and, I, and I jumped at the opportunity. Um, and it's actually the only time in my career I've actually had my own office. Um, but while I was sitting there, I was kind of like, why did I work so hard in my career now? you know, to have more of a typical nine to six, you know, month end, you get busier, but I just wasn't as challenged. And you're right. I did get that itch um, to then jump over to venture back companies. Um, and with that Nexus, you know, that really was my main client at Deloitte was WPP. And a lot of the work I was doing was earn out procedures over smaller agencies or technologies that they were uh, acquiring. Um so with that Nexus, I saw you had founders from both DoubleClick and Right Media and backed by Microsoft. And just with my own experience in uh, technology and media, I felt it was a great fit. And I was one of the early finance members to join that team when you know we were only operating in New York. And by the time I left, uh, which was only within two years, we actually had several international offices. You know, revenue had probably quintupled or something like that. Um, and I know you just had the CFO of Xander on there. So very proud that that company, you know, eventually got acquired for over a billion dollars by AT&T. Um, but another really good experience uh, in a hyper growth environment. 
All right. So, and you climb the ranks and it's more of a traditional, uh, someone like yourself who came out of Deloitte, who had these auditor skills, you go into a senior accounting role just to help the audience understand your track. You get to check the box as a controller. And then again, you move on into, uh, even more senior finance roles. How'd I do? Is that accurate? Or would you, uh, put it a little differently. Yeah, pretty close. You know, Sony, let alone is, you know, Fortune 500, a huge conglomerate. And here I was at Sony Music. So a lot of the work I was doing was consolidation reporting and financial reporting. And then when I went over to AppNexus, you know, the, again, with a lot of startups and VC-backed companies, you hear the term, you need to wear a lot of hats. And, you know, that's always true. So Yes, there was the accounting side, but, you know, I was also running financial reporting, eventually got into treasury tax. Uh, and for a short bit, you know, I was interim controller. Uh, and when the opportunity came across to, you know, really take the reins and run operational finance at uh, LearnVest, that's where I then made the decision to leave AppNexus and uh, join another venture backed company. And typically the, st the story would follow where, you know, you're the first in-house finance hire. You need to grow the team not only in finance and accounting, but they typically say, oh, well, we're on a PEO and you need to press the payroll button, so you might as well run HR. Uh, oh, well, if you're doing HR, uh, you got to do the equity agreements and run the cap table, so you might as well oversee legal. Um, and that just continues to go and go. And really what that does is allows you to get experience across the organization, uh, really understand what the drivers of the business are. And it's being short-term to make sure the business is operating on a daily basis, but understanding what's moving that business so you can do the financial planning, not just for the year, for 15 quarters, but develop that three-year and you know 10-year model. Well, we're going to want to touch on uh, a few more uh, career-related questions with you, including uh, sort of your entry into the CFO office. But first, let's find out about Freshly, which is uh, the company you're now leading as CFO today. Tell us about Freshly. What does it do exactly? What are its offerings about? Yeah, so Freshly is the largest direct-to-consumer prepared meal delivery company in the country. So we sell fully prepared meals that you just heat and eat uh, at your home. Period. And, and uh, so unlike um, this isn't, you're not affiliated with any restaurants you're making, you have uh kitchens that you prepare these meals and is that uh and and it's all about distributing the meals and getting them uh getting them to consumers yeah we have uh, a few kitchens across the country and you know, i call them kitchens on steroids because they're they're giant uh, we have hundreds of chefs that uh, prepare each meal um and there's no cooking required by the end consumer well, I have to say, I, I did go on uh, YouTube and just uh, check out some of the videos uh, related to Freshly, which shows you the presentation, the box that arrives and how the meals are prepared and, and served. And it's really quite interesting. People might want to check that out. I hadn't uh, been a customer before, but it looks kind of intriguing. Um, are you which markets are you currently serving, basically? So as of the beginning of 2019, we had national distribution and we serve the continental U.S., so all 48 states. Uh, let's ask you about your arrival then at Freshly. And I, I know that you were first a, a senior vice president and you got a little 
time under your belt before you ascend into the CFO role, uh, which is always, I think, preferred by many of our finance leaders who tell us, yeah, that was nice to sort of have that time and build some relationships with uh, some of the stakeholders and, uh, well, know where the restrooms are. And uh, uh, what would you uh, what would you share with us? Tell us about uh, sort of your arrival there. What attracted you to the opportunity? Yeah, so I joined the company back in 2017. And the company wasn't national yet, which means they weren't shipping to New York. They were more focused on the West Coast. So, you know, I hadn't heard the brand name or I hadn't tried uh, the meals. And when it first, uh, it was a fellow board member who introduced me to the company. Um, and when they mentioned, I was like, uh, being very familiar with the meal kit industry, I said, I don't need the next meal kit company. And it was quickly, no, no, no. The, the meals are already cooked. And I said, oh, well, great. That actually solves my problem. You know, I had tried Blue Apron, tried HelloFresh, and I joke in my household, I'm the dishwasher. But, you know, my wife would spend nearly an hour cooking. Um, I would enjoy her delicious cooking. And then I'd be spending 30 minutes cleaning all the dishes. And to me, it wasn't saving any time. So it wasn't that convenient. But here I found, oh, a solution that's fully cooked. Well, wait, now you're really solving my problem and giving me time back. So, I said, but look, I got to try the food. So they express overnight uh, package of meals. I had pretty low expectations, but I was extremely delighted uh, that this food was really great. And, you know, I encourage all your listeners and yourself to give Freshly a try and, and taste the product uh, for yourself because uh, it's very high quality and it's also extremely healthy. So when you step into the role, though, was there, did you have to reorganize finance? Were there certain key hires you needed to make? Um, so again, it followed that trend where the team was relatively light, right? The company was scaling at a rapid pace. So, you know, I inherited maybe a team of three, uh, where now we're a team of over 30. So putting the company and the team in the right direction uh, really started with hiring. Uh, and before you get into doing that, it's, of course, understanding all the details around the business uh, to how it is going to grow to say, what are the resources needed to then accomplish those goals? Uh, and the way that we've organized our finance and accounting team uh, is actually having regional accounting that's at all the manufacturing locations to make sure that from a cost accounting perspective, you know, we have feet on the ground that when any issues arise, it's very quick that they could go on the plant floor and figure out, oh, what's the right uh, number for inventory, so on and so forth. But from a corporate perspective, uh, we were growing that team in New York and especially, uh, you know, our FP&A team, which again was a team of one, which is now a team of five. And you have people focused sometimes in different vertical areas, whether that be, you know, COGS analysis or short-term planning. And then you have other analysts looking at capital markets, uh, you know, our 10-year model, um, and really positioning ourselves to be a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, so the team we plan to continue to grow. So we, uh, I'm very much want to talk to you about the current environment and, of course, the pandemic, uh, because I think your lines of sight were particularly interesting as you saw the behaviors of your customers change and maybe new customers arrive. But can you, uh, just to provide a little bit of an overview, let's maybe begin at the beginning of the, the pandemic and, um, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about what you saw happening. Yeah, sure. And I, I think we were uh, a pioneer here where first our corporate office was one of the first in New York City to say, hey, we're closing down. 
where I think other companies throughout that first, uh, that second week, I guess, in March, were making those announcements. And I say that because that set precedence to what was going on throughout the entire organization. Uh, we knew that food manufacturing and food delivery would be considered uh, an essential service. Now, we weren't 100% sure. So, you know, we actually talked to some local governors and uh, made sure we were taking the right um, steps to ensure our facilities would stay open. Um, food safety and employee safety has always been a number one goal. So this just heightened that. And, you know, one of the jokes I say is when I first reviewed the chart of accounts, when I started the job, I noticed uh, PPE was in OPEX. And I was like, why is plant property and equipment on the income statement? And little did I learn, it's uh, personal protection equipment. Uh, so we've always had, you know, nitro gloves, uh, people wearing hairnets, face masks. Um, it was just making sure we had further backstock of all those materials. And then from a face mask perspective, just that we had higher rotation uh, than we normally had. But this was the second week in March, we had hired 24 seven nurses to be at all of our locations to do temp screening to temp checks and health screenings. So I think this was before that became the normal protocol. Uh, and I remember Nestle is one of our investors. We were talking uh, with their HR team. Um, and actually, I think we were helping lead the way of these are the right procedures. We even printed laminated forms for every employee to confirm their employment with Freshly because we were worried that there were state, state lockdowns that were going on. If an employee were pulled over, they can at least show and say, no, look, I'm authorized to work. My shift is past curfew. I work at Freshly. I'm an essential worker. Um, so it was good that we can continue to uh, support the employees. And then we also want to make sure we were supporting uh, the community, especially with food. So uh, this was again in March. Uh, with Nestle, we partnered with them and donated half a million dollars to Meals on Wheels, uh, making sure that seniors who were really in need of food and didn't have access uh, would be able to get it. Uh, and we also committed to donating over a million dollars worth of food um, to Feeding America and local food banks uh, throughout the year. First, uh, was there any dip? And when was there suddenly an uptick? I have to believe there there had to have been. Yeah, so Freshly has been uniquely positioned where actually our constraint is capacity. We almost operate where every meal we make is sold. So when we were in March and early April, um, we didn't have the opportunity to actually see that uptick in revenue because we couldn't produce more. Uh, but what happened was we saw order rates increase of our current customers. So there's a there's a period of a few weeks where we had no new customers because there's so much demand for people who are already using our service. And what was very interesting as we followed our data in detail and we cut we slice and dice cohorts in every which way, but we noticed at first you were seeing slightly higher reorder rates um, out of San Francisco and Seattle. And then eventually that became New York. And if you follow the spread of COVID, you do see that trend kind of overlaid with our order rates. And in addition to those order rates, we saw people upgrade from four meal plans to six meal plans or six meal to 12 meals. Um, Cause I don't know about you, but you know, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn and you couldn't even get on Instacart or, or Peapod. It was really difficult to get food. So I think people were just trying to stockpile what they could get. And once you were an active freshly subscriber, uh, People just needed more meals. And in the past, we were more of a dinner solution, um, where I think that transitioned to be more of a lunch solution, uh, working from home again. Like when 
There were still some fears around delivery and contactless delivery. Um, Freshly was a very good option for all of us uh, working from home. So if I understand what you're saying in part, uh, you were able to take some of the lessons from certain regions and apply them to other regions where the dynamics begin to be similar. Uh, along the way, one would think. Yeah, yeah. in April, we um, opened a new distribution uh, facility. So come April, we were our revenue capacity had increased. Where was and that located? It, I'm curious. Yeah, That's actually close on the West Coast. It's in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so again, seeing how the trends of our cohort retention was performing, we then applied some of those learnings to say, hey, where should we further be acquiring customers um, and what DMAs uh, made the most sense. But, you know, you could see now with California, Florida, and even Phoenix in Arizona, uh, the COVID cases are going up and you can see slightly higher demand uh, in those regions. Now, in the uh, part of the write-up I received, it says that you double down on commodity market research, especially in the protein markets that have been extremely volatile. So tell us about that. What are you up to exactly? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, making sure the facilities were up and running and making sure our employees uh, were safe was a top priority. Uh, Then being customer focused, we had to ensure we had the materials uh, to continue to serve them. And, you know, in the beginning of COVID, there were just so many unknowns uh, that with my FP&A team and procurement team, we basically sat down and went through over 100 of our top inventory items and said, okay, what is our backstop inventory? And what do we think is the right appropriate level of uh, an inventory position to make sure we could survive any hiccup within the supply chain? Uh, so there was one deep analysis into those volumes and then also looking at the commodity markets. So in early March, you weren't seeing too much volatility in price. Um, but as we got into April, uh, COVID continuing to spread, you know, your uh, animal-based protein processing facilities were being hit hard uh, by COVID. You saw a lot in the pork markets and in the beef markets. Um, so there's a company actually called Erner Barry. Uh, they do a lot of protein uh, market research. Uh, so we got a few more licenses on that and had the team double down and focus to say, hey, what are we truly seeing within pork and beef to how do we get ahead of that? And working with our culinary team and saying, look, we're seeing these costs spike. What can we do um, with our menu to ensure our customers still have a ton of variety? And you know, you might have seen some swaps where maybe one or two less pork dishes, but we added a couple more turkey dishes. Um, I would have said chicken, but we have a lot of chicken and uh, I happen to love all of our dishes. <laughs> all right. Um, so can you give us uh, just, uh, this is such an unusual year uh, for me to ask you, what are your top of mind metrics? They might be different, I suppose, than they might've been 12 months ago. But uh, when you, uh, uh, wake up in the morning before your first cup of coffee, what numbers are you looking at? What are you zeroing in on exactly? Here in the summer of uh, 2020. Yeah, I think that the golden metric for any consumer uh, subscription company or any subscription company, maybe for that matter, is LTV to CAC. And within that LTV to CAC ratio, there's a bunch of metrics built into that, right? What is your AOV? What are your repeat order rates, retention and churn? What are your gross margins? 
all that to get you to your LTV. And then within CAC, uh, you know, your, your marketing costs, there's always various ways that you can calculate that. Um, but at the end of the day, that is the core metric that I am looking at to say, what is the return on ad dollar that we're getting? And what is the lifetime value um, of our customer? Just for our listeners, could you maybe provide us with a, an abbreviated history of your capital structure and uh, the different investors? Nestle's an investor. Are there other investors as well? Or is there a short history you can give us there as to how the company came to be with its partners, investor partners? Uh, yeah, Nestle uh, was part of our last round of financing. And prior to that was Insight Venture Partners. And the prior VC to that was Highland Capital Partners. And, you know, a few other investors on the cap table. But, you know, those are the main three. Well, two uh, two of the three well-known uh, are well-known venture partners. Uh, but Nestle, maybe not. Not not always thought of as a, a venture investor. Um, <laughs> interesting. Kind of pops out at us. Yeah, and I, I have to give Nestle a lot of credit. I've dealt with other uh, strategic investment arms, um, but Nestle, among all that I've worked with, has truly been a strategic partner. And that was everything from helping us design our facilities, work with us in our R&D process, where I think they valued our speed, where we can bring a meal to market within three to four months, where their cycle was more like a year and a half. Um, they've helped us leverage their scale in terms of procurement. Um, but really, you know, open office on both ends where we've had really good dialogue uh, to help each other uh, and be successful. Matt, as you, well, you might know, we, uh, we like to always ask our guests for a finance strategic moment. And the question's really designed to allow finance leaders the opportunity to reveal to us how they view finance as being strategic. So if I'm not putting you too much on the spot here, uh, could you share with us a finance strategic moment? And again, this could be any time during the course of your career. Uh, anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, this has happened at each of the venture back companies that I've worked at, but it's the first time the company went through this as a project, and that is working on the data dictionary, right? So it's a cross-functional project, which you include finance, your data team, product tech engineering, marketing, and all facets of the company to make sure we have a clear glossary of all terms, uh, financial and operating metrics, and how they're defined. So earlier, you know, I mentioned CAC and there's different ways to define it. When I was at BarkBox, I think we published on a weekly and monthly basis, five different calculations of CAC. Now, if LTV to CAC is the golden metric, well, wait, which version of CAC do you use? And typically what I hear is we use the definition that is media dollar, uh, just the media dollar spend, right? And closely aligned to a ROAS. Um, but CAC can also include agency fees, fully loaded CAC that includes the team, that includes creative assets. Maybe it includes discounts or discounts is above an LTV to get you to net revenue. But how you define this all matters to them what the output of that metric is and how you make some decisions. So sticking with CAC as this example, I remember we were talking on the marketing team and CAC plus agency was at a certain number. And there was this idea, well, hey, let me just hire more people on my team and I'll fire the agency and then my CAC will improve. 
well, look, at the end of the day, cash is king and the money is still going out the door. But it's important that we look at, hey, how are we truly defining that? And does that definition really drive the business in the direction we want? Um, and this goes through every single metric uh, that we have. And they're not all uh, financial in nature, right? They don't all have a dollar sign in front of it. But um, it's important to gain that alignment, not just amongst the leadership team, uh, but the entire team. Um, and I would say one financial metric that you know is defined, it's non-GAAP, but EBITDA. I'm very proud to say if you ask anyone in the Freshly office, what are our goals and what is EBITDA? Uh, they would know exactly what it is. And it's funny to me because, you know, now working uh, from home during COVID, you know, my wife overhears a lot of our conversations and she's a New York City school teacher, uh, but she now knows uh, what EBITDA is. So I'm proud I could teach her as well. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. When we return, Matt Hagel enters the mentoring round. We'll be back. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back with CFO Matt Hagel, and we're entering the mentoring round. Matt, this first question is where we ask you to look back once more and think about when you first stepped into a leadership, finance leadership role. Is there a piece of advice you'd give yourself as far as taking on that responsibility as a leader? What would you tell us? Yeah, so I'm proud to say, you know, this is month one of having the official CFO title. So I'm brand new to it. And, you know, maybe I'll be back on in a few years and have a different response. But, you know, I do look back to joining the company where the role was still the same role of leading the finance organization. And, you know, prior I was at BarkBox, which is a uh, another subscription company, a monthly service of toys and treats for your dog. Um and knowing the business model was the same, I said, well, Freshly is just a weekly model, so it's a little more frequent, but pretty similar. Okay, I got this. And little did I know, I underestimated the complexity within food manufacturing um, where Bark was buying fully finished goods, you know, just buying a fully completed toy. But here, there was all the forecasting and planning around labor, materials management, whip, uh, food waste, so on and so forth. So it was all that complexity that I wish, you know, I had maybe further prepared for, or maybe, you know, what I accomplished in my first 90 days could have been accomplished in my first 30. Um, but it was just a learning curve that it takes anytime you take a new position to learn the business. And, um, you know, maybe if I didn't underestimate it, I could have moved even faster than we did. Is there a, a habit that you have? We always ask finance leaders to reflect a little on the personal side. So a personal habit or a part of your daily routine that you think in some way has helped you uh, succeed on the professional side. So something on the personal side 
that's paid some dividends to you on the professional side. Anything come to mind? Yeah, every morning I uh, open my phone and the first thing I do actually is open up my calendar. Uh, and what I do is I review my day and mentally prepare for the day ahead of me. Um, sometimes I'll see a key meeting and I might say, hey, I, I need a little more planning. And if I do have a gap, I will plan that. And you know, a lot of people at Freshly can tell you whenever someone's trying to schedule a meeting with me, I always say my calendar's up to date. Um, and I include all personal activities in there too. But really first thing in the morning, seeing what my day is going to look like, it, it helps me mentally prepare for that day ahead. Interesting. Is there a book selection that you'd, you'd make to our audience? Uh, it doesn't have to be a business book. Yeah, I have two. Uh, the first is a book I recommend to everyone. Um, and I know it's financial leaders. So uh, it's a Spencer Johnson book and it's not the one minute manager, but who moved my cheese? Um, and this book is something that you, you know I relate to personally and professionally, but that key lesson of to not hem and haw and focus on what's wrong, but to seek the, and actively go try and get the change that you're looking for. So I'm always reminded of that book and it's something I recommend to everyone because I'm a slow reader, but that book takes under an hour for anyone to read. Um, the other one was a book recommended to me uh, by one of my board members as I'm actually in the process of searching for an executive coach. Uh, so he recommended Trillion Dollar Coach, which is about Bill Campbell and was written by Eric Schmidt. But it's essentially his story, his professional story and how he became an executive coach and really goes through... Uh, the value of a coach, not just to the person they are coaching, but the organization. When you when you look out, and we've been having this conversation with a number of different finance leaders as they look for coaches, uh, is there a finance specialization or is it really just a C-suite specialization for coaches? You know, I'm asking the same question and obviously people will give you different opinions. And I think there's benefits if you have someone who's been a financial executive uh, who can help you with certain aspects of that, but I am leaning, especially after reading this book, where you know Bill was a college started as a college football coach, and I think coaching is a unique skill where he was able to coach people like Steve Jobs, Eric Schmidt, and other financial leaders, where it didn't matter the subject matter, um, just being able to teach leadership, uh, communication, and I think most importantly, listening. Um, I think those are skills that go cross-functional. So I would lean more to that side. Great. Finally, we're going to ask you to look forward for us. And uh, over the next 12 months, what are your priorities? You know, as a finance leader, I think you put the company goals first. And for us, that's continuing to achieve the massive growth uh, that we are, but to also do it profitably. And I'm proud to say for 2020, we have year-to-date profitability, and we expect that trend to continue. So remember earlier, I was talking about data dictionary and just common financial term of EBITDA. I am really proud that all of our team members know about EBITDA because it is a company goal that we want that number to be positive. And everyone in their role has the ability to make a difference. I'm not going to manage everyone's T&E um, or software spend, but if everyone's thinking, hey, am I really getting a return on this investment? Is this going to add to our bottom line? Every decision that every person is making will help us as a collective unit achieve that goal. So it's part of my job to make sure as a leader, I'm guiding the whole team there. And you know, FPNA is creating a more detailed plan uh, to help guide the company. But uh, that's really the main goal. Matt Hagel, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. 
Thank you. I really appreciate it. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.